Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, November the 2nd, 2011, and this is episode 776 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about winter gardening and more about winter gardening projects than actual winter gardening. I'm not going to go over a lot of crops and things that you can grow. I'm going to talk about doing things either to grow stuff this winter or to get ready to grow stuff next spring. Uh, different projects like greenhouses and organic matter collection and some things that I'm doing, some things that I've changed my mind about, some things I'm kicking around doing uh, going forward. Uh, as the year moves on, some things that I've I've had plans for and I've kind of changed about. Some of the things that kind of got set back a little bit uh, by getting moved up here in the summer instead of the winter, which was the original plan this year. Uh, and some different cool stuff like that. Kind of a different show, changed things up a little bit from what we've been doing. Uh, we know we can get too deep into the gloom and doom of the economy and what have you. So this should be a fun show and it should give you some ideas no matter where you're at. Even if you're an apartment dweller, it should give you some ideas. I'll try to think about that more. When I do shows like this, people that are dealing with, well, i got a back porch or maybe a common area, an apartment building, or I've got a rent house and I can only do so much. And try to, like, when I talk about something big, I'll try to scale it back to what you could be doing and how you could do it in a smaller environment. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. If you'd really like to have a knife that's unique to you, you can go out and pay someone to build one, which isn't a bad thing to do. I mean, I kind of did that when I had my custom knife made by uh, by Patrick of MT Knives. And, you know, I, I don't regret it for a minute. Or you can make something of your own. It's really up to you. If you want to do that, if you want to learn how to do that, KnifeKits.com is your source to do just that. Whether you're a master bladesmith making your hundredth custom special knife or you are making your very first knife, you'll find everything you need at KnifeKits.com. Remember, they have a cool print catalog you can order. They'll ship it to your house. And you might enjoy browsing that, especially as we're heading into some of those cabin fever winter months, along with those seed catalogs to have something else that's kind of cool to occupy your mind. So consider checking them out and getting their catalog today. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. What I like about Sawtooth is, number one, I'm a veteran and I like to deal with other veterans. And even if you're not a veteran, you should want to deal with veterans because veterans set up systems that make sure that customers get taken care of because that's how they're trained. When you're in the military, everything's around a system. And that's what Sawtooth is, is a veteran-owned and veteran-operated company that runs that way. And that way you know that you're, you're going to get taken care of. And if there's a hiccup because, you know, human beings are in things like the postal system or whatever, you know they're going to make it right. Now, what will you find at Sawtooth Tactical? Well, all the stuff you need to live a tactical lifestyle, everything from, you know, Magpul magazines to SOE tactical gear and everything else you can think of, you'll find at Sawtooth Tactical. So check them out today. You'll get great service. Uh, you'll get great product, you'll get great pricing, and you'll get really tactical stuff to check out. Especially with Christmas coming up for that tactical person in your life, maybe it's a good place to check out, see if there's something there uh, that you might want to add to their stocking or even a little bit bigger going under that tree. All right, next up today, uh, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And the Survival Podcast is now also featured on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network. You can find them at PrepperPodcast.com. Uh, last but not least, remember, you can join the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of really great discounts. I just added a, you know $70 worth of new free stuff. Uh, two days ago. I said yesterday what it was, so I won't go over it again today. But it's a program that I continue to expand the value of uh, just about as often as I can without diluting the value. Right? I don't want to just throw so much in there that not everything's useful. So I try to find new stuff to add that brings new value to uh, the program. It comes out to about 20 cents an episode to join the member support brigade at $50 a year. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, active duty or prior service, email me with details of your service before you join, and I will give you a special service, uh, national service recognition discount. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up about a minute early today. Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Here's what kind of spurred this on. I, it, you might imagine that after doing 700-odd episodes, almost 800 episodes now, there's mornings where I get up and I'm like, what am I going to do today? Well, yesterday when I got done with my show 
And I realized I had two shows, uh, two interviews booked. I have Stephen Harris today, so that means you'll hear him tomorrow. And then I have another person on Thursday. That, like, Tuesday was my day to get out and do something uh, before it got dark out. It's getting darker earlier now. And one of the things I needed to get done is get over to the compost facility and load up that big truck of mine one more time uh, to finish off my last two hoo culture beds, which we'll talk about more in a bit. So decided, yeah, it's time to get that done. You've, you know, you've procrastinated long enough on the last bit of it, and uh, you need to get that done so you can move on to your other projects. So I drove out there, and unlike most times where I'm sitting there with three liters of water with my Camelback, I had a couple of the two stainless steel bottles of water. I only went through one of them. I really enjoyed what I did. I filled the truck from the cab to the tailgate completely. I mean, you couldn't have got any more in it without piling it up. And since I didn't have a tarp and I didn't want it blowing into people's faces, I didn't go any higher than that. And I really didn't need any more than that for that day. So I was, I was sitting there and thinking, I could do this all day long. And I, you know, it's probably because I've continued to lose some weight and I'm in a little bit better shape and what have you than I was a couple months ago. But a couple months ago, the last time I was down there, uh, I had to take break after break after break and I was pouring sweat and I went through three liters of water instead of one little, you know, bottle of water. And it was because it was a hundred degrees out and yesterday it was like 55 degrees out with a breeze. And it just made me realize that what I've always said is true, that your big projects, your your heavy lifting projects, your physically demanding projects for your garden, for your and for your homestead in general, are great um, to do in the fall, the winter, and the early spring. And they suck to do in the summer. So that kind of made me think about all the things I have planned in the next few months and how much more it's going to be enjoyable to do them. And, and folks, I'm one of these people, I'd rather be out there with my Carhartt jacket, my Carhartt pants, and gloves on, and cold, uh, than I would be out there and be sweating. I, I really would. I, the cold does not bother me. When we start getting below 10 degrees, that's when I start to go, it's too damn cold out. I'll wait till it warms up a little bit. That's why I moved south, by the way, uh, at a long, a long time period in the past of my life, decided to edit enough of the northeastern United States in, in these days that were, you know, constantly down in the teen, lower teens and below 10 degrees throughout the, uh, what do you call it, throughout the uh, winter. So, Here's some stuff that's going on, and I'll kind of try to relate it back. So it's not just me telling you what I'm going to do, but you know what you can look at. One, uh, my greenhouse, which the greenhouse itself, the frame, uh, the tarp, all the materials, except some stuff that has to be picked up at uh, at Lowe's uh, to complete the, the kit, some concrete and some some wood, uh, was donated by a guy named Steve from Steve's Greenhouses, and I'm going to try to get that project started. Not this weekend, but next week, okay? And uh, I'm putting in a 10 by 20 hoop-style greenhouse, and that should be sufficient to do all I need from a greenhouse. Now, the reason that I'm using Steve's greenhouse is because he contacted me and said, I'll give you a greenhouse if you do a review of it for me. So that's that was why I chose that. I actually went a bunch of different ways. One thing I looked at doing was a 10 by 20 pole barn-style structure using uh, cedar. And it was thousands of dollars just for wood, and I thought that's just silly. I don't, I don't need to do that. I looked at doing something from reclaimed windows and what have you, and there'll probably be some reclaimed windows in the greenhouse that I'm going to do because it's going to be uh, hoop plastic with plywood panel type, uh, actually more like T11 siding uh, ends. So the ends need glass as well. My greenhouse is going to have to orientate facing south with the front end, so there's going to be as much glass as I can get in the front end, giving both sides a good east-west side exposure. So I don't know if you've looked, a lot of times with smaller greenhouses especially, you'll see that like one side is like huge growth and the other side is like really dwarf growth because the eastern sun is stronger than the western sun. What I've done is probably not as optimum as doing that and just accepting it, but it should kind of even things out. And it's just based on my land and where I could push the flat space in and the way things are oriented. So I'm orienting my greenhouse facing almost due south, uh, which obviously if it was faced long ways due south, you would have a complete exposure all day long where I'm getting more of this kind of Passover exposure, especially in the winter. The good news is it's quite a bit uphill, uh, and exposed on this hill so that it's going to get great exposure. There's some trees that are around it that are going to have to come down. My wife's not happy about that. Every time I want to cut something, she wants to save it. Uh, with a lack of understanding, sometimes I want to cut something so I can put something else there, but not to vent to you guys or anything. But So the greenhouse is going in this month. I think that this is the time of year to build greenhouses. I really do. I think that if, you, if you're going to build a greenhouse... Uh, you want to get some use out of it right away. Well, it's a great time of year. You can get some use out of it. If nothing else, it's something you can get use out of in the early spring for starting out your plants. 
My plan for my greenhouse has kind of changed. Uh, last year I went on with my goals for 2011, and one was to have the greenhouse in this year. It will happen. The other one was to have the aquaponics system up and running in the greenhouse this year. It's not going to happen. I, as I look at it now, it might never happen. It might, it might never happen at all. As I look at aquaponics more and more, I realize that it's an intensively managed system that has to be managed continuously. And it's not maybe what I really want. I've dug a hole that's going to become a pond, and I need to line that pond and get that all set up uh, very, very soon. It might wait till spring. Then I don't have to worry about overwintering anything this winter. Uh, you know, it just it's an open hole. It doesn't hurt anything right now. I don't have a neighborhood association going to get down my neck about it. So I might do all the the, the pumps and filters and everything and all that construction uh, in the spring when I'm past major frost uh, potential, and I don't have to worry about that coming in the middle of plumbing stuff or what have you. But I don't know. I may do that right away. Anyway, the whole point of that is with this five thousand gallon pond. I can grow out a ton of tilapia every year. Uh, I can create a system that, 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 that siphons out their waste material for, for uh, fertilizer on my garden, in my greenhouse, anywhere I want. And I can manage that system separately. And people will say to me, well, Jack, you live in a place where the water temperature is eventually going to get too cold and the tilapia are going to die. What do you do then? The day that it gets cold enough that the tilapia float, it, it, there's nothing wrong with them when they start doing that. They've, been, they, they've died of winter kill, and it's fillet day. And basically what we need to do is plan for that day and start filleting in advance. And any of the fish that are too small to be used can then be just netted up and used as fertilizer and compost. So I'm thinking that might be actually a much easier way to go. I'm also not totally sure that I'm going to do tilapia at this point. I'm starting to look at some other options. Uh, channel catfish, I can do quite a few in a, in a, a tank that size. But I could also do something more simplistic like native sunfish. And, you know, how much, how much fish do I need to eat? Am I trying to pick, if I was going to do fish for market, well then tilapia make a lot of sense. What I've learned over the years, going back to being a little kid that used to go fishing with a cane pole and a piece of bread, the smaller the fish, the greater the portion of the fish that's actually edible. Uh, we went out recently out on Lake Washita, we caught some, a big old striper. I caught a striper that was probably about 38 inches, 12 pounds. When we filleted it, cut the red meat out, did all of that jazz, we ended up with about three-ish pounds of, of fish. If you take a half-pound sunfish and fillet it, you end up with a quarter pound of fillets. So smaller fish actually make better system-level protein sources uh, in like a farm environment. So if I have native sunfish in there, and I can do anything to keep it from freezing too much, basically the fish can overwinter. I can get my own stock in fish just by going out and collecting some fish and throw them in a bait bucket with an aerator. Um, since they're a, a fish with a you know that, that are considered like a bait fish level fish or whatever, I don't have to worry about um, things like you know any kind of game laws or anything like that by doing this. And because they're in a system that's not really set up and conducive for them to spawn, I'm not going to have population explosions. Because while tilapia could spawn in a pond like this, a deep wall, sidewall pond is not really optimum for sunfish to spawn in. And if they do, it's called a dip net and it's called fertilizer. So I really don't know what I'm going to do there yet, but what I'm really kind of thinking is the greenhouse is one thing, and instead of an aquaponics system, it's going to be more of an aquaculture system. And I'm looking at ways to put in more ponds. More on that in a bit, because it's not really a winter thing. Um, but so those are some things I'm thinking about. So maybe it's time for you to evaluate. Do you want to do an aquaponic system? Is it just something that sounds like a good idea? Does it really fit in your life well? Or would you be better off with some type of an aquaculture system? And the guy that got me really thinking about this is Paul, uh, Paul Wheaton, because he said, you know, to me, aquaponics is in permaculture. I disagree with that completely. This is what I see. If something's going to be permaculture, prime directive and the three ethics and, and aqua, uh, aquaponics blows those three away. So it's, it's permaculture. What he meant, though, is to him permaculture means if I put it in place as a system and I have to do very little maintenance and it runs itself. And he said, you know, aquaponics is kind of a pain in the ass. I've got to sit there and worry about my levels, and if they get too high, the, the fish will die. If they get too low, the plants won't grow, and I'm constantly trying to keep this balance in place. And I don't know if I want to deal with that or not. I don't think it's as bad as he's making it out. But he does have a point, and you know, I do have a life, and I travel an awful lot, and it may not make sense for me. So I'm looking at more along the lines of trying to emulate on a much smaller level what Sepp Holzer's done, where he has multiple ponds, and he's growing trout. 
And basically, when you want the trout, you go get the trout out. And otherwise, it takes care of itself. And I don't think I can quite do that on my setup, but I think I can get closer to that and have a happier uh, system than I can with an aquaponics system. So those are some things that I'm looking at. Uh, one of the things I think it's really a great time of the year to begin doing is what I call trick-or-treating for organic matter. You know, we just had Halloween. We did a zombie show and all. But this is a time of year where people are raking up leaves and putting them in bags and sending them out for the garbage truck to take away. Well, even if you live where there's lots of leaves, isn't it nice that they're all nicely bagged up for you? Now, if you go pick them up and throw them in the back of your truck. And a lot of times there's, you know, woody matter like twigs and stuff like that in there. So even with a very low-end shredder, like a chipper shredder, if you're not shredding and chipping big branches and stuff like that, it's just twigs and leaves, uh, you know, you can pick up a shredder for a few hundred dollars, probably find a used one for even less. And as long as it runs okay, man, you've got just mountains and mountains of organic matter for mulching and composting. And if we take that and combine some greens with it, man, we've got everything we need to do composting, and somebody's bagged it all up for us. Now, we can either keep it in bag stacks somewhere, or we can dump it out into some type of a protected area, but we don't have to really do a lot of work for that. And I think most of us, we're out and about throughout the week or what have you. And if we just take rides through neighborhoods on the way home, maybe extend our trip a half mile here, a quarter mile there, we'll probably find a lot of this stuff laying around. Sunday afternoons, Saturday afternoons are great days to do this. And uh, so I think that that's one of the things you need to be looking at right now, because what's going to happen is you're going to go into this kind of dormancy state with winter, even if you do some winter gardening and all, where you just kind of like relax. It's going to be Christmas, and it's going to be Thanksgiving, and you're going to have turkey and then goose maybe for Christmas if you don't do turkey at Christmas too or ham or whatever. And New Year's, and you're going to celebrate, and then the, the, the real, if you're the further north you live, the more this is true, the real old man winter is going to take over for 30, 60 days, and then it's going to be spring. And, and, you know, the birds are going to start coming back and chirping. And the snow's going to start melting. And you're going to be like, I want a garden and I want to do composting. Well, now all the leaves are matted to the ground and they're not easy to rake up. And everything's already starting to compost itself out in the forest. And you don't have the material. Well, right now the material's sitting there pre-bagged and ready to go. So, you know, my thoughts are now it's time to go out and get yourself some. Uh, and I, most people don't have a problem with it. Another thing I'm looking at is one of the things I want to do this this winter, uh, somewhere between you know now and the first part of next year, is build my rabbit hutches. And I'm looking for the area that's the best suited to build my rabbit hutches. And here's what I'm realizing. My rabbits need protection from this heat, but they don't need to be in shade all day long uh, in, in the winter. So what I'm actually thinking about, we just put in a 10 by 14 corrugated metal shed. And that corrugated metal shed is on the uh, the north side of my house. And that's that that area over there is fairly well shaded to begin with. Trees behind it, trees to the side of it, trees to the, to the other side of it, house, and you got the north side thing going on all at once. But the, uh, the east side of that shed has actually got great solar exposure. My thought is to build rabbit hutch in an L shape so that the hutches are both behind the shed and on the east side of the shed, and maybe even the west side of the shed, and create some type of a way where the rabbits can have access to almost thermoregulate thermo the way a reptile does. I'm not quite sure I know exactly how to do that yet, and we certainly don't want a system where rabbits can be on top of each other, crapping on top of each other, the way they stack industrial chickens in a truck. But I'm thinking with some, some, some creativity and some runs maybe on the same level, I could create a system where rabbits, even though my doe is in her, you know, maybe two does and one buck is about all I need, and then a place for my, for my, you know, bunnies to grow out. Where even though they're all kind of sequestered off, they actually have tunnel pathways that can get them from one side to the other, have more area, and give them the, the option with nesting boxes and things on both sides. Now, I've never done anything like this. I don't know anybody that has. Maybe rabbits are too stupid. Maybe I need to make sure their nesting boxes are only on the side that are optimal for the season because they're dumb and they'll do it in the wrong place. I don't know how that's going to work out. But my initial idea was to build a hutch system on wheels that I could actually just move. So I can move it into the shade for the summer and move it into with decent solar exposure in the winter. But my thought is if I can let, if I can just double the size of the apparatus and let the rabbits make their own decision, those tweener days, Rabbits can choose to be cool or warm based on what they're actually looking for. 
Maybe I'm nuts. If anybody's ever done anything like this or thought about anything like this, let me know. Uh, mostly what I've seen with rabbit hutches is they build a system somewhere and you try to pick the best spot for, for year-round to kind of do the permaculture thing with let the sun be blocked out when it's high in the summer and let it come in low angle in the winter. The places that I have that are best suited to do that are either too far away from the house for my comfort, for protection from predators, because there is some level of predator dissuasion just by being close to the home and close to the dogs and everything else, or they're in an area where I wouldn't mind them, but my wife would say they look trashy and don't belong there because people can see them. So the area I have to work with, I have kind of this, this conundrum of either giving them too much heat or too little heat, And maybe the easy answer is simply a mobile hutch. And maybe in the summer, when there's no danger of frost or freeze, they stay in the shade, shaded area pretty much all the time. And I am looking at doing some rabbit tractoring in the pasture I'm going to create in the backyard as well. Uh, more for the rabbit's nutritional and recreation than anything else. Um, and just because something is being raised for me doesn't mean it should have a decent quality of life. So that's one of the things I'm looking at doing. Uh, and next, next thing I'm doing, and I've, I've been working on this for a long time, and I'm continuing to do this, is cover cropping and pasture creation. Uh, the cover cropping is really about the who holds your beds now, so I'll skip that for now. But the pasture creation, this is something really interesting. And I've got a video coming out this week sometime. The new video guy is kind of still learning to edit in Vegas and everything like that. But it looks like we got a good production school uh, schedule going now. But when I put my hoo culture beds in, we did a lot of damage to the land around the beds. Uh, not that it was great land to begin with, but there was a lot of loose soil, easy to erode then. I went out and I sowed a mixture of red cowpea, buckwheat, uh, oat grass, and and uh vetch. Now the oak grass and the vetch absolutely would not germinate when I when I when I sowed them. And I knew they wouldn't germinate. It was too hot out for either one of those species to germinate. It was in the high 90s, low hundreds when I sowed that stuff. But what happened is because I sowed it alongside uh the buckwheat and the cowpea, the cowpea and the and the buckwheat went mad. They they you know, they did as good as they could in this poor quality low nutrient soil. And but they grew And they created a sheltered environment. The buckwheat is now dead. It's, it's not dead because it got sick or it got cold or whatever. It's dead because it only has a short life cycle. And it went through that life cycle. There's few sprigs and sprags of it there, but it looks kind of sick and it's pretty much dying out. Uh, I've been cutting a lot of it as it went on and mulching it into my beds, right? Because it's growing right around, this area is right around the six beds I put in. So I'm growing mulch adjacent to the beds. The cowpea, I have been cutting some here and there of it and almost coppicing cowpea. As crazy as that sounds, but taking half the plant away and it just keeps growing back because it's really, really tough stuff. And I've been throwing all of that. So that's all green matter, so it's all nitrogen going into the hoo culture beds, which again, I'll give you a progress update on in a minute. Now here's the interesting thing. Now if you go out there, everywhere that there is a buckwheat or a cowpea strand, Right up underneath it is a little bitty vetch plant coming up. So that vetch just sat there, and it just waited for its time, and it start and it started growing when it was pretty cool yet, and it start we got started to get some rains down there shaded, and now it's 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 seceding. It's coming up as the next crop, and the oat grass is beginning to come up. I'll go out there the next time it rains, and I'll throw more vetch, and I'll throw winter pea, and I'll throw uh, more oat, and I'll throw triticale out there, and I'll just keep seeding the hell out of that area. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with that area, but I want root mass, I want biomass, I want organic matter, and I want nitrogen in the soil. The important thing to understand here is I am doing nothing else with this soil. I'm not tilling it. I'm not turning it. I'm not mulching it. I'm not fertilizing it. I'm not watering it. I'm not doing anything. The reason this is a winter topic, though, is winter is cool, less evaporation, and moist. And now's the time, even though I threw some stuff there in the summer, it was just to hold the soil in place so I didn't have any more damage. Now's the time to ramp it up. Now's the time I'll be dumping crimson clover in there, Dutch white clover, a mix of annual and perennial clovers into this area. So that is a pasture creation on the front side. Whether it's actually a pasture for animals or not, I don't know. But I will never have a lawn again. Basically, I'm establishing pasture where most people would have a lawn. And I'm going to expand that. Right now I'm working very hard on a specific area because it's the area that was damaged by the pond construction and the bed construction. The other, I'd say, 60% of the front 
has got native plant life growing there. And when you see the video, you'll be surprised, though, at how well the area around the culture beds did, even not directly over them, because the area behind me that's all native plants looks pretty barren right now because we had a really bad drought this summer. And when we went in and we, we cut it down because it had grown and died and it was a fire hazard, it really hasn't come back much yet. It's starting to now. The winter succession of native plants is beginning to come. So that, that system is very regenerative and restorative because we don't run animals on it and we don't damage it. So it, it, even though it doesn't look uh, it is, uh, like some kind of a, a massive pasture system, it's in pretty decent shape. Then out on the back side of my property, it's, it only gets the western sun. And in the winter it gets even less. And then I put in a deck so now it gets less. But it actually does get a decent amount of sunshine back there. And because it stays cooler because of the shade and the way that the sun angles are and everything, it's an area where if I get it established, I should be able to do a good job growing a mixture of perennial grasses and Dutch white clover. That will be more like a lawn than a pasture. Call it a mini pasture. So that whole area, kind of my next big... Uh, big brawny project is going back to the compost facility. It'll probably take about four or five truckloads of compost because the ground back there is subsoil. When they pushed the, the space in to put the house in, uh, the people that did the work gave no concern whatever to the topsoil. And they just shoved a shelf in, and then it drops off like a valley behind my house. It's a wooded, forested valley, drops off, and then goes back up the other side. So that whole flat spot that the house is on, and then it's just an extension of the shelf that goes back another probably about 20 feet from the house to where it kind of drops off in a no-mansville, is a silica subsoil with rock mixture. There's no nutrient value there. And the pioneer species of weeds and stuff like that, even they have had a hard time because of the lack of sun coupled with the infertility to getting something established back there that, that's you know year-round and doesn't make mud. So what I'm going to do is put down about a one- to two-inch layer of compost and seed the hell out of that with perennial clovers and perennial grasses and try to get that established. And when native species come in there, they're welcome. I won't let them grow up 12 feet tall, obviously. I don't want to turn that into a jungle back there. I want to keep that in open space. I want it to be a place where we can, you know, get, get some greens for our rabbits and for chickens and things like that. But I also want it to be as native as possible with these additions that I'm bringing in. So, you know, for you guys out there, you know, where in where where on your property do you have damaged land? That's the point I'm getting to here. Where do you have damaged areas? Where does the grass just not grow? You know, where where can you just not get things grow? So this is the time to to fertilize that area, to bring fertility in, whether it's something you compost it on site or get from a facility, and bring in something that can handle, that's designed to grow in that area. Your whole yard doesn't have to be Bermuda grass. It probably shouldn't. You know, it really shouldn't. So the, the winter is a time to set up the bandage on damaged land so that it can heal. Uh, when it rains, it generally drizzles and rains slower instead of pouring, pounding, erosive rains. Your evaporation is much slower. You have moist conditions that are conducive to breaking down organic matter and natural fungal-based composting processes. So this is the time to bandage damaged land. So whether you have a tenth of an acre with a little place under a tree where nothing grows, or whether you have ten acres with a half acre of damaged old pasture, this is the time to fix it. And I don't think most people really think about that. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is installing some heating systems for maybe a greenhouse and, and a couple different ideas that I have to do that. Number one, I'm really thinking heavily about in my greenhouse building a rocket mass heater, just doing a berm-based rocket mass heater like Paul Wheaton's guy did on YouTube where you have a rocket mass heater, the, 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 the berm itself across, let's say, the back of the greenhouse is the thermal mass. You've got a pipe coming up out of there. That goes out the back wall for exhaust. You go in there, you put a handful of wood in every night when it's going to be below freezing at nighttime. Uh, that wood will burn for a good duration of time, build up heat in the thermal mass, and even though eventually the fire will burn itself out, um, you're going to end up with that warm thermal mass keeping the structure at least warm enough to protect the plants inside it through the evening. That's one thing I'm thinking about doing. The other thing I'm, I'm thinking about doing is setting up a compost-based heating system. And I have a couple different ideas for that. One simple thing is just compost in your greenhouse. 
I mean, that's one real easy way to do things. You get a CO2 off-gas effect, so that ups your CO2, so that gives you more growth rate. Uh, you get heat. You don't have to move anything. You don't have to plumb anything. You don't have to set anything up. The, the downside is, though, you only have so much effect because your compost heap is warm in the center and cool on the outside. So you have to go in there and turn it. You have to move it into your greenhouse, which means, obviously, when you're done with the composting, you have to bring it out of your greenhouse. Ideally, you need two piles. And you need two piles staggered, let's say, two to three weeks apart. So that as one's reaching fruition, the next one is coming into optimum. And then you're bringing out the finished product and bringing in a new one and keeping them staggered. And you've got to keep that going all the way through the winter. Well, even for a 10 by 10 greenhouse, you're taking up a lot of, or a 10 by 20 greenhouse, you're taking up a lot of floor space. And you're talking about a lot of composting. Another option is to build a, a typical three-stage bin composting system right next to your greenhouse. And then putting down at the bottom or, you know, in the center of your, your pits, basically, a water reservoir done with just simple PVC piping. Running out of that PVC piping all the way up into your greenhouse, you run, uh, you know, piping or tubing where that water can run through, run it through the greenhouse and back down the other side. When you get heat gain in your compost uh, system, it will heat up the water. That water will follow a path up. As it gets closer to a steam state, it'll never reach a steam state. It'll go through the greenhouse, and as it cools down, it'll trickle back down and refill the reservoir. I don't have the complete particulars of this. If you asked me to design it specifically the way that it works, I'd say we need to talk to Clayton Jacobs, who I need to talk to to better understand the system myself. He's doing it, and he's doing it in a completely different way that's really, really cool. Compost is in the greenhouse, so he's heating the greenhouse directly, but uphill from the greenhouse, he has beds. Over the beds, he has uh, row covers. And the tubing takes the water out underneath his row covers and then back to his greenhouse. That's even more optimum. Where I had to put my beds and where my greenhouse are far enough apart, that doesn't really work for me. But he said when he did this, he'd go out in the morning and there was steam coming off of his beds. So there's a lot of ways that you can set up passive heating systems. My concern with using compost is while it's very, very cool to be able to do it that way, and it's very, very environmentally friendly, It's contingent upon being able to keep enough compost going throughout your entire winter, including kind of getting it going again if you have one of those late spring, early summer freezes. Where if you, if I do the rocket mass heater, which is the way I'm thinking about going, even if I use compost, right, as long as that rocket mass, I don't have to even use it. But if it's there and there's going to be a cold night and I can't get enough out of my compost that night, you know, I can turn it on and it's a done deal. So that, that's another thing I'm thinking about. I've also thought about the fact that it actually would be really easy to take one of the little portable Mr. Buddy heaters and on just certain nights throw one of those in there on low. Lowest setting it'll go, and they'll usually out of a pound of propane, you get about 12 to 18 hours on their lowest setting. You, the thing about a greenhouse is heating your greenhouse isn't like heating your house. We want to heat our house to like somewhere between 66 and 72 degrees for most people. That's kind of our comfort zone as human beings inside a structure without air moving through it. We don't like to be much hotter than that. We don't like to be much colder than that. When we look at a greenhouse, if I can keep a greenhouse at 38, almost anything that I'm going to have in a greenhouse in the winter months is going to be okay and safe at 38 degrees. So I only need a small amount of gain to keep it there. So if my outside temperature is 20 degrees, I only need about 20 degrees of thermal gain, where in my house at 20 degrees, I need like 50 degrees of thermal gain. So even though I have a lower insulating factor and whatever, it's a much smaller square footage area, and I'm only trying to keep the temperature just a little bit above freezing. And almost, you know, unless I'm trying to like grow and crop tomatoes, um, even if I've got young started plants out there, it's not going to kill them. In fact, in many instances, that 38 degree temperature is very, very beneficial to your young plants. Uh, they want warmth during the day, but that warm day, cold night, warm day, cold night, that cycle stimulates a lot of growth. Peppers do great when they go through that cycle and then they go into the warm months. In fact, if they're kind of protected completely and they stay at a warm temperature and they don't have that cold, hot, cold, hot cycle, they get very lethargic even when everything else is done right. So it's, it's a very optimal thing. An interesting note on why that's the case. Peppers are not an annual. 
We grow peppers as an annual because we live in a place where it goes below freezing in almost all of the United States. Almost There's very few places where we don't get some freezing nights. Very, very tip of South Florida, down into the Keys, I guess. Very, very tip of California, Hawaii. I don't even think if you go to the very southern tip of Texas, you avoid 100% freeze. You might, but I, I don't think you do. If you do, you get there's three little tiny zones. The rest of us have to deal with the fact that it's going to go below 32 degrees. Pepper plant below 32 degrees, dead. That's why we grow it as an annual. Pepper is a tropic, subtropic species that grows as a perennial shrub, not an annual plant. So when we take a pepper that sprouts, and it sprouts when it's 80 degrees out, and next thing you know it's 90, and then it's 100, it's waiting for its real growth to come that next year. Because it was, as far as its innate intelligence knows, it sprouted late in the year. Winter's coming, tropical winter's coming, wet and cool. That's what it's waiting for. When we put it in a system where it gets hot during the day and cool, it's, it, it thinks it's growing in the cool tropics, right? A lot of places in the tropics and subtropics, they have temperatures that go down into the high 30s, right? Sometimes they even get very, very light frost in some of the subtropical areas. And that's enough to kill off your peppers uh, that are growing there natively. But in their native environment, they just found that area. Where's that? That was the furthest they can go uh, outside of that tropics into the subtropics before they start having winter kill. So when we take peppers and we put them through this, this warm, hot cycle, then when they come out and that warm weather comes up, well, now they're ready to throw those roots down deep and go like crazy. So we can't, you know, it's great to plant from seed, whatever we can. Peppers are tough to plant from seed because we can't give them that in most of the United States. It's too cold. We need enough warmth to germinate the seed. That's the other thing. You know, it, 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 pepper plant... 40 degrees Fahrenheit, no problem. It's not going to die. It's not going to make it sick. If it's a big plant, it might start going a little bit dormant, shedding a few leaves, getting ready for winter. But if it's a little plant up and growing, it just kind of holds on and waits because it thinks it's you know the warm weather's coming. If we put a pepper seed in a 40-degree soil, it will not germinate. If it does, it'll take 30 to 50 days to germinate. If we're lucky, it eventually will germinate. It'll feel like I've been here long enough. It's got to be coming and go ahead. It's innate intelligence. We'll let it germinate. So interesting things happen when we start to utilize greenhouses with just a little bit of supplemental heat. So I wanted to bring that up. So that's another thing to look at is what supplemental heating systems. Because the reality is, and I've been thinking about this too, you can go buy a nice little wood stove for 150 bucks, right, or less, down at like Tractor Supply. So if you set up a freestanding wood stove inside your greenhouse and, you know, low enough so it's not going to melt your, your, uh, your poly if it's a poly tunnel, and then you vent that out your back wall, you know, with, with a proper pipe and all, and you go in there and you set a fire in the evening on nights where you know it's going to dip below freezing, uh, just before the sun goes down while the solar gain's still there, and that fire burns for, let's say, an hour to an hour and a half as flame, it goes down to coal, and those coals will sit there and smolder for another two hours. So now I've got four hours of my night with legitimate heat coming off of there. Will that stove take you through until morning till your solar gain returns? I don't know. The answer is I really don't know. For some, if it, even if it does, for someone in a place where it's going to be consistently below freezing, you know, from let's say, before Christmas until mid-March, and almost every day it's going to go down below freezing, this is kind of a laborious process to go up to stoke that fire up and, and do this. But for someone like me that might have two or three nights of freezing weather and then two weeks without any freezing weather and it comes back further in the south, maybe that's a better system. I don't know. Have you done it? If so, let me know. So there's a lot of things I think we can look at doing that. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is one of the things I'm planning to do, and I think the winter would be a great time to hire someone to come and do it, is put in what I would call a truly hidden survival garden, survival food forest. I talk a little bit about, I've talked about my land and how it's not optimally set up to do a lot of things I would like to do. To give you a complete understanding of this, my house faces east, uh, mostly east, uh, a little, maybe a little northeast. Sitting on a ridge, when the ridge runs northeast to, 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 uh, to, to, is northeast to southwest, basically. Okay, actually, just call it the ridge is dead north to south is the best way to look at this. 
So there's a road running along that ridge, and my house is to the west of that road. So when the sun comes up in the morning, it hits that hillside, that valley hillside across the road beautifully. Great solar exposure, not my land. As soon as it gets high enough to cover the next mountain in the distance, I get over that height, and I'm a little higher than that one, so it works out well, and it's the top of my ridge line. That ridge line gets sun even in winter all day long. But that ridge line, like from my house forward to the road, is this narrow strip of about an acre of land from one one of my property line to the other running north to south. And that's where most of this activity is going on. The house itself was pushed into a shelf. There's a pole line with easement there, and I can only do so much in that pole line. And they've already cleared that out, and there's blackberry and stuff growing in there. Uh, the, the county people did so the trees wouldn't grow up into the lines. Uh, it caused problems because when power goes out in my, up my area, it's out for a long time. So they try to minimize the maintenance by clearing everything out below those lines. When you get back just a little bit there, I'm, I'm pure forest. Uh, I would say probably 25-year-old or older forest is the last time anybody cut any logging out of there. And it's a fairly mature system. Hickory, uh, hickory and red oak are my two dominant hardwood species, a few other things, and a bunch of pine. And I only, I, I don't want to cut, even though I talk about my wife trying to stop me from cutting, I don't want to cut too much of that. And then about four acres of land, though, that fit this area where it drops down into this valley, levels out, and goes up the other side. Now, as it goes up the other side, That side of the hill gets beautiful uh, eastern sun exposure, but I don't own it, right? I own basically right to where the valley flattens out, starts to come back up the other side a little bit, and then my neighbor owns the land behind me. So I've got this area down there that's pretty well sun-shaded, but it's sun-shaded mostly by the forest itself. And if you stand down there in the middle of the day, man, there's a lot of sun coming through those trees. Once that sun gets up in that southern sky, it's actually wide open in that valley. So there is solar exposure down there. So my thought is if I hire somebody with a machine and I get down to where the slope begins to taper off, got to go and cave the convex, now where my seasonal creek bed is, in that area, maybe I clear, clear out somewhere between a half to an acre, uh, a strip where I open it up. And I start planting a garden and, and, and food forest down there, right? So uh, the garden crops, and the, when I say garden, I'm talking about persimmons, uh, grapes. I'm talking about perennials, like a perennial garden. No, no real annuals down there. Maybe some squashes and things like that just to see how they do or beans here and there. But really a, a, a layered system down there. Now the beauty of this would be if you walked by my property, you wouldn't see it. If you walked the road all the way around up to my neighbor's property behind me, even if you were standing above it looking down at it, you wouldn't see it. It would be this little oasis of food forestry completely surrounded by native forest. The downside is I have to go in there and I have to take out native trees. And what I've been trying to do over the last few months is go in and constantly kind of mentally survey the area and figure out where is it just brambles and pine and crap? And can I gut out a piece of this and really leave all the mature hardwoods especially that are there? And even where I would gut this out where there's some freestanding hardwoods that grew big in this mess, not take them out. And I think I can pull that off. And I think it would be a really unique project. Now, why is this a winter thing? Well, because if I'm going to go in and start taking out trees and taking out bush and taking out shrubs, even with a piece of equipment, there's a lot of manual labor that goes on after that, so the cooler working weather. But it's also the time that the forest can handle having the canopy opened up. And it gives me time to get cover cropping going back in and trees going back in before the blistering heat of summer comes. It would also let me go down there and survey the area for contour line and go in and have that machine come back and then dig in some um, some swales and take a lot of that organic matter and build that organic matter up in front of where the swales are going to go on contour first and basically do hookah culture in front of swales and set that whole system up as a self-managing system. So that's that's kind of my big project, and I'm kicking it around. Do I have the time and resources to do it this year? And I'm really hoping that I do because this really is a winter thing. This is really something I do not want to start in uh, a summer where you've got that ground just being baked. I want to give the ground time to begin to heal itself after I go in and do that type of work. It's also a difficult thing for me to do because, again, I, I get in these conflicts with my wife if I want to cut a pine tree down, but when I have mature forest, I really don't want to cut any of that. So what I'm trying to do is, is convince myself that there is an area in there, and I think there is, 
that could be extracted, even maybe a half acre, um, that we could open up and do something like this with that would increase the long-term value both to us as homesteaders and to new landowners if we ever look to sell it. Lastly, I want to kind of give you an update on the hugel uh, culture beds and, and where the progress is. What we did is we put in uh, six hugel culture beds this summer. They're four foot, actually four and a half foot by ten foot. And I did them on six terraces. And actually, it's really more like three terraces. So it's like a terrace and two and a terrace and two and a terrace and two. Pretty close to that anyway. On a fairly decent downward slope. They're oriented going east-west right on the top of that ridge line. So they're in an optimum space for solar exposure. There's a tree or two it probably would be good to take out, but they're mature hickories and I really don't want to. One of them I'm going to trim up a little higher. One is kind of a parasitic tree to a second tree. I'll probably take that one out. But overall, they've got good exposure. Um, four of them I was able to really quickly fill up with compost and topsoil uh, after they were put in place. So what we did is we dug down about three feet, filled up to about ground level with uh, rotting and decaying hardwood that was that my wife and I gathered throughout the summer, uh, put the boxes in, leveled them out with, with the soil and subsoil around them, and then we filled them in with this soil compost mixture. And it's very, very heavy to the compost side because why I get unlimited free compost by going to load it. Two of the beds we got kind of like halfway full, and then all this stuff came up, and I just like you know, tired and didn't feel like doing it and had other things to work on. So they just didn't get filled up. And since I wasn't going to plant them all right away, didn't really matter. Yesterday I went and filled those other two up. Right now, here's kind of their status. One is half full of cabbage and garlic, and the other half has been planted to cover crop for winter cover crop that has not come up yet. The second one has a mixture going in it of broccoli and uh, green onion and uh, some Swiss chard and, and a bunch of stuff. Uh, arugula is just going great. Uh, here's the thing, I've never watered these beds ever, except when I put seed in them, I water them the day that I seed them to get a good moist soil contact with the seed. Otherwise, I haven't touched these beds. Everything's going great. I have like four or five broccoli plants I planted from seed that are huge, thick, robust, beautiful broccoli plants growing in there now. Uh, there was like 12 of them. Uh, where'd the other six go? They're in the middle of what is now a dog-shaped hole. My neighbor's dog does not respect my garden beds and it basically got in there and killed quite a few of the plants that I had planted in there. I have since replanted those areas with some other annual winter hardy vegetables. We'll see how they do. It's just kind of a thing to see how they go. The next two beds up, when they were put in, I immediately seeded them with buckwheat and they grew a great huge crop of buckwheat. And I've just this week, and we did video this on one of them, cut the buckwheat down, turned it into the soil and planted a cover crop. So one of them is planted with a pretty, pretty heavy legume uh, mix of cover crop. The other one, I turned the buckwheat in and I planted cabbage and broccoli and carrots and parsnips and beets and spinach and some other things. So that bed is planted. I don't know how well it'll do. It's a little late in the year to sow that stuff. The soil's not very warm. As long as it sprouts, what I'll do is put a row cover over it, and it's had one cover cropping of buckwheat, and buckwheat turned back into the soil, and very, very rich compost that's in there. The next two, what I'll do today is I'll go home, and I'm just going to cover crop them. And when I cover crop them, I will go ahead and water them. I'll also water them for another reason. And this is going to tell you something very interesting about building a, a, a culture bed in a raised bed start, you know, thing. Instead of putting wood on the ground and piling up, digging down, dropping the wood in and building a box raised bed or even a conventional raised bed over top of it. When I would water my raised beds in Texas, when I would water them long enough to really saturate them, eventually what would happen is water would begin to seep out from underneath in the sides of the beds. These culture beds, I can stand there for an hour pouring water into them. And guess what amount of water ever seeps out the sides? Zero. And the reason is that water has three feet to go down into the subsoil. So when I did not fill those two beds, unlike the other four beds, they never got fully charged. So I'll water those today uh, to fully charge those beds all the way up. And again, when I'm putting down this, this cover crop mixture, um, I want to make sure that I'm going to do that in a way that gives it good soil contact. So obviously the best thing to do would be to wait for a rain. And like right before you know it's going to rain, because the weather guesser says, I'm sure this time, and you're sure this time, and you know the rain's coming, you throw it down. 
Uh, because I waited so late, I want to get this stuff in the ground, and I don't want to wait for a rain. So I want to get that system charged with water, because that water kind of stratifies. Here's what I've seen with the hoo culture beds this year, and it's really, really interesting. It can go three or four weeks with no rain. And I mean, this is when it was still hot out. And the top is just bone dry. And you scrape away a half of an inch, and it's dark black moist. And what I, and, and the deeper you go, the moister it gets. And when you get down a foot deep, it's, it's not soaking wet at all. It, it doesn't like, it, it doesn't get into that state, but it's very, very moist. It's moist like when you cut open a bag of potting soil and you dig into the center of it, it's that kind of moist. That's what it's like down there. So to me, the deeper we go, the more water's being held. And, and it's basically a giant, a hookah culture bed to me is a giant self-watering container on a scale we couldn't do in a flower pot. So instead of having a reservoir of water, we've got this reservoir of moist wood. And as long as we have good, loose, friable soil and compost and, and humus above it, it's going to wick that moisture upward. It's also going, because it gets moister as it goes down, when I've pulled some of the plants out to see what their root systems look like, they are insane, the root systems. They don't just have the big, multifunctional you know, roots going everywhere, star pattern that you're used to. And roots always run a Fibonacci sequence, by the way. But their taproot is unbelievable. I have taproots going down a foot on plants I've never seen go a foot deep. And it's because as that moisture content increases on the way down, that plant is being given a signal. The deeper you go, the better off you'll be. And because that soil is loose and friable, it can just grow that root as deep as it wants to. And I would bet that some of these plants I've pulled out with a one-foot deep root actually had an 18-inch deep root or deeper from hair roots that are going down from there that obviously break when you pull them out of the soil. And I'm talking about when I pulled out things like cowpea, And I pulled buckwheat out. I pulled buckwheat out really, really gently and, and seen root systems six to eight inches deep. I've never seen roots that deep on buckwheat. Buckwheat doesn't need a lot of nutrient. It doesn't need a lot of water. It generally just doesn't go that deep. So I'm seeing an effect of driving deep roots by creating a system for things to grow in. And I'm seeing plants grow deeper root systems uh, than, than, than I'm accustomed to. And this is only the first year. Remember, you're kind of supposed to treat these systems with kid gloves the first year. They need to be fertilized and all. With the amount of compost I've thrown in there, though, it's just like ridiculous. The wood can have all the nitrogen it wants, and there's still plenty left over for the plants. So those are kind of the things that I've been doing this year and, then the, and the plans that I have going forward. And I hope it spurs some things on for you guys and, and some thoughts on what you can do. Those of you that, when I do these shows that are in like the apartments and stuff like that, I want you to think, what can you grow? I think that this is, this is a self-sufficiency topic. And, and, and one of the things we need to remember when we talk about self-sufficiency versus self-reliance. Self-reliance is a flashlight. Self-reliance is measured in time. So if my lights go out and I have a certain number of flashlights and a certain number of batteries in the house, there's a finite limit to that. And that self-reliant component will eventually run out and need to be recharged with something. And no matter how many batteries or flashlights I store, I still have limitations with it. I still have a temporal limitation. And let's face it, it's not the same as click with the light switch. That's self-reliance. Self-sufficiency is the ability to provide for yourself on an ongoing basis. The thing to remember about self-sufficiency is it's something that we, we measure in percentage versus time. And I think that that's where a lot of people get into trouble with self-sufficiency because they say, well, I want to be self-sufficient. So they take a lot of things that would give them incremental self-sufficiency and they write them off. And winter's no time to be doing that, by the way. So a person could build a system that would create 10% self-sufficiency for them and say, blah, it's only 10%. Well, it's 10% that you don't need to give away to somebody else that you can use to leverage your life in other ways. So if we look at the cost of buying um, when it comes to fresh, uh, natural produce per pound, we can look at things like herbs and they blow away a tomato by pound. It's one of the most expensive things you'll ever purchase is an herb and one of the easiest things you'll ever grow. So if we can cut the cost 10%, even if we're not providing 10% of our own calories, we're still kind of in the same boat as long as we have a job and work for a living. So as we go into these winter months, what I want you to look at more and more, folks, I want you doing this all the time, is where can I incrementally increase my self-sufficiency and worry less about self-reliance? Because self-reliance is something we can purchase. 
We can purchase by gaining education, and we can purchase by gaining stuff. So if I want if I want six months of self-reliance for food, it's really not a big deal. It's really not. It's a few meals I don't eat out over the next year to save up, and I buy six months worth of long-term storage food, and I stick it in the closet, and it's good for 20 years, and I've paid for it, and it's done, and it's there. It's probably not the best approach if that's the only thing I'm going to do, but it's it's very reasonable to do. I could do it with beans and rice and pasta for a fraction of the cost, and I'm not going to be very happy, but at least I'm going to eat and I'm not going to starve. Throw in some canned meat and stuff like that and a couple jugs of, jugs of oil and things like that, and for a very limited cost, I can set up three months, six months of self-reliance for food easily. But it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me unless I need it. It's my insurance. Self-sufficiency is my assurance, right? It's an assurance that I can continue to live the way that I want to live, even if systems begin to fail around me. So that if I can create just 10% of self-sufficiency in my life over whatever I have today, that's 10% of my resources I don't have to expend anymore. Now, that just happens to be the number that all the retirement advisors tell you to save for your retirement. So if you're already doing that, And then you come up with 10% more. Now you're doubling the speed of your retirement. And you're cutting the time that it takes to get to a retirement level income from savings in half. That's purely from a financial standpoint. That says nothing of the health benefits, the mental benefits, or the continued walk forward. Because here's the reality. If I can get to 10%, I can get to 15%. If I can get to 15%, I can get to 20%. If I can get to 20%, I can get to 25%. Right, And the, the apartment dweller that looks at this stuff and says, well, I can't do all this, what you can do is begin to learn and begin to develop your own plans for your eventual system because you know, what I want for anybody out there that says that's their problem is I want you to have a plan to get out of that. I don't want you in an apartment when, when this, this society begins to melt down, which in spite of the fact that I'm you know, telling you now that I see a short-term recovery, And, and I've actually been forecasting that a long time. The meltdown will come. And in a high-density population in an apartment building, it's not where you want to be when that happens. You want to have some level of self-sufficiency. I don't want you freaking out and running out and doing something stupid tomorrow because Jack Spear goes to get out of an apartment. But I want you thinking that way. Those of you that are already on your you know, eventual homesteads, it's become a reality, then build it really up. Those of you that are in that mid-space, that are in suburbia, small town, whatever, with that small lot, I want you to realize how much of this stuff you can do. I want you to realize how much you really, really can do for yourself. It's actually amazing what can be done with a tenth of an acre. And I think that an intensely managed tenth of an acre will often outproduce a crappily managed two-acre plot. Um, there's so many things that you can do in a, a simple suburban yard. So, so think about those things as well. But the big thing is, remember, winter's coming, and there's a lot of opportunity in winter. And those of you that have damaged landscapes, this is the time to set the bones, to put the cast on, put the bandage on, so that the land can heal itself. It's very difficult to heal damaged land in the summer when you've got hot winds, intense heat, and low rainfall. In winter, when we have you know wind, but it's a different type of wind. We have moisture, we have retained moisture, we have less intense sunlight. This is a good time to get the system in place. It might not even start to grow. It'll start growing in spring, but you need to get everything ready now so that when that spring time comes, the land can indeed heal itself. And it's amazing how much damaged land there is out there, even in most suburban areas. And, uh, you know, grass doesn't necessarily mean health as well. I'll just leave it at that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
children just can't pay Nobody up there cares They're living for today Revolution is you.